p.m. on Tuesday, October 21st, 2003, a 34-year-old Caucasian man was pronounced dead from knife wounds to the chest at the County USC Medical Center. During his short life, the man established himself as a preeminent singer-songwriter whose engagingly candid lyrics would be described by critics as tragically beautiful. back episode two Rock well, art, up. artist two right we're at artist two artist two with the rockabies with mel and shell okay we have gabby in the room um and gabby just read the intro to this fabulous artist mm-hmm. so good and his name was Stephen Paul, as she gave a teaser in the last episode. And his name was Stephen Paul Smith. Ooh, who might this be? Elliot Smith. Oh. Elliot Smith. Sweet and boy Elliot. Sweet boy Elliot. Sensitive, shy, gentle, brilliant. Heartbreaking um, songwriter. Heartbreaking. That's that's brilliant. Heartbreaking. And he just played a note, apparently. I know, right? <laughs> that, that was happened. him. Boom. Uh, like, I was like, where did that come from? Ding. Hi, Elliot. You know you're here. Hi, Elliot. <laughs> so I guess I kind of want to, I guess we should start out because from all the articles and books that I read about Elliot, um, they've all done a really great, thorough job of going through his triumphs, his trials and tribulations first. And I just want to address, actually, you know what? I want to do the quote first. I always right. do a quote. Like quotes. So I want to do this like quote from someone. Yes. And yeah. I found this quote. So then we'll go back into Elliot. So this quote I saw and I loved it and I got to bring it up. But this person wrote, if you, and it was in an interview that this person wrote. And they said, he, she said, if you take the time to look at anyone, and find out what their story is, then their story becomes immediately interesting. Someone could live for 10 minutes and still have plenty to write about. You can feel a lot of ways and notice a lot of things. People are really kaleidoscopic, or kaleidoscopic, whichever one. There's no topics that can't be put into a song. So I try to write about everything. Everybody's got their problems. But I don't play music because I'm a tortured person. I play music because I enjoy it, because it sounds really good. I'm no sadder than anyone else I know. I also think it's not all true. There's things about my songs that are sad, but that's not the point of them. People overlook the happiness. It all depends on your point of view. Hmm. Someone, something that makes you feel sad might make someone else feel happy. Because they're like, well, that's how I feel now. 
And there's a million ways people can feel. Who do you think said that? Who said that? Oh. I'm so captivated by what you were saying. Same. I was like, I, I know. totally can relate think it. to that. Um, who said it? Who said it? Who said it? You can just guess. It doesn't even matter what it uh, is. Okay. Uh, well, I have someone who has sad songs. Um, uh, I'm so drawing a blank. I want to know. Think about somebody who's sad songs who we're about to talk about. Oh, Elliot Smith said that. Oh, okay. Elliot well, that was Smith. a trick. That was a I trick. tricked you. I tricked you. I thought I it was tricked Elliot you. Smith, and then I was like, who said that? See, your first inkling was Elliot. I, the last episode with Sam, I ent- I quoted, yes, okay. I quoted Mr. Rogers. Mr. Rod- well, it started, it sounded like Mr. Rogers, and then I'm listening, and I'm like, oh, Elliot said this. Yes. And then I'm listening, listening, and I'm like, man, you go trick me. And I'm like, I'm I thought sorry. these were Elliot's words. I know, trick or treat. Yes, Elliot said that, and I thought that was brilliant. Oh, I know, so I know brilliant. I talked about Pablo Picasso, the first quote for Sam, and you know, Mr. Rogers, but I thought, you know what? What a better quote what than What about from Mr. Elliot? Because he himself. had some great quotes. And so going back to Elliot, you know, about the articles that have been written about him and people going to his trials and tribulations, I kind of want to address the positive things about his personality mm-hmm. that only his closest friends and family would know. That's beautiful, because I would say a lot of people, you know, for me, I knew Elliot Smith as an artist. I knew his, and, you know, granted, they were sad songs, which I love. I actually have a student, a young student. We're both, like, happy sunshine people, but both of us are just like, oh, like, our best songs are sad songs. Our favorite songs to listen to, favorite songs to write are the ones that you just want to sleep in a bed of tears, but they make us happy. Because it taps into people's vulnerable emotions. Mm -hmm. I think that's what made him brilliant was he was vulnerable. His eerie-like vocals were so vulnerable, and they they drew you in. You know, I listened to a few songs, and it drew me in, and I didn't know for all... For all sakes and purposes for here, I didn't know enough about him. Um, I didn't know enough about his music, and I'm grateful that we're doing a second episode so that we can learn and, and you know, you know, some of our rocker babies are going to know everything about Elliot, and some of them, like myself, are, are not going to know enough. And now you know more than most people. <laughs> I'm grateful, and now I want to I share. I want to give to everybody so that they know enough about him. Um, he had a great sense of humor. He was a very funny guy. But he did, he was an excellent mimic. He did spot on impersonations of Mick Jagger. Oh, wow. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, no yeah, he was known to be a very generous guy. He was the type that would take a $100 bill and put it in like a homeless guy's shoe. Hmm. He was, um... Well, he was sensitive, so that makes sense. Extremely. I don't think he could write... I don't think he could. He had such a massive heart. Obviously, he couldn't have written the way he did. He yeah, couldn't. That's true. That's true. That's true. And he was. You're right. He was highly intelligent. Like someone said that they saw him reading a physics, a quantum physics book, on a tour bus. Oh, it's awesome! Isn't quantum that crazy? Physics is pretty fun, though. Yeah, <laughs> and we'll talk about how. Um, well, let's talk about quantum physics. I'm sure. I know. We'll talk about how brilliant <laughs> this Mr. Stephen Paul. Smith, Mr. Elliot Smith is, you know, he was born on August 6, um, 1969 in Omaha, Nebraska, and his parents divorced when he was a baby, 
and his mom relocated to uh, Dallas when he was a baby. And when Elliot was around four years old, she remarried and had two more kids, his um, beloved uh, brother Darren and sister Ashley. And the one thing about Elliot, as I read, is that he was a great older brother. He oh. adored his siblings. He didn't try and play games with them, and he loved having them around. And he really got along with them. He really got along with his um, you know, siblings, his step-siblings, and he got along with his mom. He loved his mom. Um, but the relationship with his stepfather was a relationship that really haunted him for the rest of his life. Mm -hmm. It was um, tortured and tore him in his eyes. You know, I don't, I don't want to, he may be still alive, his stepdad. It tortured Elliot in so mm -hmm. many ways. And, you know, he talked about it in a lot of his work. And, you know, like say Roman Candle, the song Roman Candle from the album Roman Candle. It, you know, he talked about different um, songs and he would allude to his stepdad and their relationship. Um, and, you know, the great thing, though, I think one of the bright lights of all this is that from the age of five, he started, you know, his dad, his dad, Gary, had custody of him during certain summers. So he would travel back and forth to visit his dad in, in um, Portland. And during these visits, the brilliant thing is his dad introduced him to the Beatles. Oh, he introduced yeah. him to, like, especially the White Album, which he would love for the rest of his life. Um, and his dad taught him how to play the guitar when he was a young kid. And, you know, I think that that was probably the bright light out of all of this, you know. And I, it, it goes back and forth because there were signs, there weren't any signs of moodiness when he was a mm -hmm. child, any signs of emotional problems. His friends and family called him Stevie. And he was, you know, lived in Texas, but he didn't exhibit any of these signs until later on in his life, That's um, interesting. which is interesting. I, I thought it was when I read about it. I didn't read that he was like you know morose or anything like that. Yeah, in his early as like a kid, happy-go-lucky kid. And totally, just take very a turn. happy. But, yeah, I mean, it happens obviously. Yeah, something triggered something. We'll mm -hmm. find out. But you know, back in Texas, you know, when he lived with his mom and his stepdad and his siblings. Um, he played clarinet in his junior high school oh, band. Oh, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, and he was, you know, he had lots of friends. Lots of friends. He was very much the Leo, because he was a Leo. I love and Leos. Yeah, so he's... Aries love Leos. Exactly. Fire. Fire signs. Fire signs. Fire signs. <laughs> so he was, a, you know, he was charming. You know, mm -hmm. he's a very charming guy. And I think when he had um, him and his friends, as most when he was 12... He had a lot of friends, and this these group of core friends that he had, they played Dungeons and Dragons, and you know, they listened to bands like Rush. One of Elliot's favorite bands as a teenager was the Canadian rock group Rush. They formed in 1968 and have been together ever since. Rush is known for their musicianship, intricate compositions, and unique lyrics, which draw heavily on science fiction, fantasy, and philosophy. They were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2013. Besides Elliot, they have been cited as an influence by many musical artists, such as Metallica, No Doubt, Tool, Pixies, and Trent Reznor. And he was also a Jackson Brown fan, which I think is kind of key because Jackson Brown is a big-time singer-songwriter. Mm -hmm. um, and the amazing thing is he formed a band. At 12 years old. 
around 12 years oh, old. so cute. You know, he played the guitar and the piano in the band. Oh, they didn't have awesome. a name. And they had a uh, lead singer, which was uh, a girl named Kim. And they performed only one time at a talent show. Um, it was in a, I think in a church. Um, but they were less interested in performing than they were in recording. You know, Elliot possessed this boom box in his room and he used a mic to record from it. And even at this age, he established a habit of writing songs daily. You know, most importantly, he had a fascination about leading tones and passing chords, which I don't know about, mm -hmm. you would know about. Yeah, like the Beatles. What songs from the Beatles can you think of off the top of your head? Every song? Like <laughs> That's do. what he said. Yeah, like he do, I mean, every song has, and you can, you know exactly, it sounds like, um, it sounds, it's like this. Play the chord on your piano, oh, on your okay, keyboard. This would be like a C7, so. That. It's got this like pretty, but still kind of unresolved. Because in a major chord, I mean a major scale, um, the seventh note, you, you feel like you want it to be resolved. And so that's what makes it so appealing. And there's, I mean, literally, I think it's in every Beatles song ever written. Which and that's what so he got cool. it from. Like, it takes these basic, especially for pop songs, you know, so many pop songs are very similar chord progressions. And the mm. seventh and the cool diminished chords sort of just give it this this cool little extra something that the, the Beatles really did kind of coin that. And But it's, it's truly in... I, I mean, I'd have to write a long list of songs right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. I mean, that was actually perfect because that gives our listeners an idea of, because I, when I read that, I didn't know what it meant. And so mm -hmm. that gives me a great idea because I'm a huge Simpsons fan. And just just the main first yeah, note. Yeah, like that's like a seventh note. Because, I mean, there's a very complicated, like, theory definition of it which mm -hmm. you know i could read out right now and it would make zero sense but it's you more, teach music you got yeah the i know good. but i could tell you the theory part but it doesn't really make a lot of yeah, sense. yeah it I wouldn't feel, under it I would go like over my head it's far more it's more a feeling it's like that that unresolved dissonance that's sweet at the same time yeah but every major scale which is even like do re mi has that unresolved the seventh note right. is unresolved like you need it to be you want it to be resolved. Nice. And that's what makes those chords so appealing. And so the passing chord is where you don't resolve it, or do you um, do you resolve it? Do most songs resolve it? Because it's almost like a symbol. You know how when you have a symbol yeah, like this in, a, in a band, and then you want to hear the symbol, the next, what the goes through example. everything. So that resolves it. It's resolved. Okay. So that's okay. the triad. So it's like a little darker, you know, like it feels little, little, little weird, feels weird. And then it's like, oh, the sun is out again. Yes. Yes. Okay, so it's like, got and it. I mean, I think that makes a great song. That makes well, a... He had a huge fascination for that. He established, mm -hmm. um, he had a really big fascination with that. And that would play into a lot of his songs as well. Um, mm -hmm. By the age of 14, though, he realized that he could not live in the same house as his stepdad. Mm. And in the middle of his freshman year, he moved to Portland, Oregon to live with his dad, um, you know, his dad, Gary. And he joined the school band as well because he was a very good clarinet player. And with his new friends, he formed another band called Stranger Than Fiction. It's a great name. Isn't it? That is a great name, Stranger Than Fiction. And maybe it comes from 
you know, literature or whatever, but I love it. Oh, I have a question. Yeah. You know how you say there's a theme of yeah. all these brilliant people? Yeah. Was he also a voracious reader? Completely. That seems to be a theme. Completely. But all these brilliant people. So rock a babies out there. If you are songwriting and do what you do with your music, read lots of stuff. Tupac was a, was a, he read poetry. Tupac read poetry. I mean, a lot of people that we're going to talk about, a lot of artists, musical artists, and we're going to bring it up. When he got into college, I bring up about some of the people that he read, like Sam Cooke. He read a lot of different genres and, um, but yes, I can already say it. You know, he was a voracious reader. He read Freud. He read Franz mm -hmm. Kafka. He read, you know, did I say Samuel Beckett already? Mm -hmm. Okay, Samuel Beckett. But he read a lot of different um, genres, different people. He read about the Buddha. He read everything that Eliot. He was a voracious reader. And he loved different types of subjects. And he put a lot of them, as we will, as Gabby will talk about, Soren Kierkegaard. Eliot named his album Either Or after the noted 19th century philosopher Soren Kierkegaard's first published work by the same name. Kierkegaard's works address themes such as existential despair, angst, death, and God. Eliot was a major fan of Soren and read his work throughout his life. Like Eliot, Kierkegaard suffered from lifelong depression. Kierkegaard wrote in his book Either Or, In addition to my other numerous acquaintances, I have one more intimate confidant. My depression is the most faithful mistress I have known. No wonder then that I return the love. Now, he started when he was a young kid reading a lot about a lot of this stuff. As we talk about with Rush, he read a lot of, um, a lot of things, even as a young kid. I think, you know, being a, a reader myself, I think it's also, it's, I think even growing up in, you know, where I grew up in, and definitely I didn't, I got along with everybody. I loved my grandma, but it also takes you to a different world when you're reading books. Mm -hmm. um, and I grew up in a very tiny town, and reading books just took me to another place that I just loved. And I read a lot of books as a kid, um, like these guys. I'm just not a songwriter like them. And, and, you're you know, a brilliant writer, so it doesn't oh, matter if it comes to song oh, or not. Too much. You're too much. But it you're is too funny. Kind. It is interesting that a lot of these people read all like a wide variety of stuff. Mm -hmm. Like I feel as a teenager and now, like all yeah. the stuff I read is always. Do you about, read? I do. I, I do read, but I'm laughing at what I read. <laughs> I read a lot of stuff. I'm very into Harlequin. No, no, no it's always about existential things. I'm all into. My mom was really into Harlequins. I loved um, Harlequin when I was twelve. I, I just feel like I'm always reading. like reading stuff about the meaning of life. Like that seems to that's be, deep though. That's oh, that that's all tough. day long. I need a break from it sometimes. That's I, tough. <laughs> so it means you're gonna give us some good stuff about it when we start going on. Always, give I us mean, some I'm meaning here about like other dimensions and. Oh, see, I wasn't that serious when I was a kid. I no, was... I, my, the first book, I was 14. Yeah. I gave my mom, not first book, first book I gave as a gift, I guess. There was this metaphysical bookstore. I'm totally derailing right now. Wow. But it was a metaphysical bookstore, downtown Kamloops. Of course, I'd be a regular there. Why wouldn't I be? <laughs> and I gave my mom uh, Bringers of the Dawn, which is all about the Palladians and aliens and all that stuff. Wow. My mom's like, you gave that to me at 14. I'm like... That's amazing. Like even wow. now, I think it's so funny. That is, that's deep. Yeah, even at fourteen, I couldn't have thought of that. I was, 
um, I was reading at twelve. I read Harlequin romances. At twelve, I know. Those are I know. steamy. I know, aren't they? Well, and, I, and I also read, not to say I'm only talking about that. I will also read. Oh, a lot it's of about to get worse. And, and I read Exorcist. Come on, I read The Exorcist at like see, thirteen. That scares now. I know, and now I can't. Shame. I couldn't watch the movies. But I read the books and I but was... But reading is worse because you feel Because your imagination yeah. takes over. I know, right? Uh, I, I know. I, lo- I mean, I read Gone with the Wind when I was like 15. That was like thousand pages or more and also i felt about mist of avalon i like anything mm. magical like i feel like it's oh, so either that's awesome magic like yeah I, most of the stuff that i've been really committed to is about like fairies or magic or oh that's planets. cool though is Les that Mis- a surprise uh, looking at me? oh i love it well looking around the room i love it you know les mis you know i love les mis um Oh, that was sad. it was sad that's uh yeah maybe that's why we're doing elliot i know mm. Yeah, and Gabby's sitting here. I hope she don't give me the cutie pie eye. Okay, I know. Sad girl eyes. I know. So the great thing about Strangers in Fiction is that they practice. This is brilliant. They practice before or after class, and it got to be a routine for them. You know, his friends. Yeah, his friends said they were extremely productive. You know, at writing really good songs in a single sitting. You know, Um, in fact, I'm talking about Elliot. Ellie was good at sitting down and writing a great song in a single sitting. And they're recording in basements and kitchens, and that's another theme that we're going to talk about. Elliot recorded anywhere he could record. He wasn't in no fancy studio like mm. this, what we're in right now. You know, and you know, they sold their little tapes and their recordings to like family, friends, so or gave them away. And I think that's what's important for our rocker babies listening mm-hmm. is that Elliot didn't let anything hold him back from doing what he loved. Mm-hmm. You know, awesome. he was always confident about what he wanted to do. And you don't need a big fancy studio, no. you know, this you're a recording artist, to do great work. Yeah. And Elliot was like 14, he was in high school. By the time he did Strangers in Fiction, he was, you know, had moved and he was in like high school creating bands after bands and you know that's, awesome. that's what I love about him and in addition to his band activities you know all of this you know with strangers in fiction and and all of the practicing that they did you know he was an exceptional student his grades wow. were excellent so good that's that he impressive. made national merit scholar which really? is very rare at his school yeah he was one of like six people in his school to make the national, like, United States National Merit Scholar. He was brilliant. Brilliant. Um, And so he really made use of every second, Mm -hmm. even then. Yeah. You know? Um, And actually, it was around this time that he kind of adopted the name Elliot. You know, there's been different things. I read different things, like how he came across, but it seemed to be the most prevalent... uh, rumor or whatever you want to call it is that he became Elliot in high school and a high school girlfriend called him Elliot as a nickname and it stuck and he liked it he never was a big Stephen or Paul fan he said he preferred Elliot it's so, so weird I cannot picture him anything but Elliot I know not like Stephen you see his Paul face, right? you're like you're an Elliot you're just an Elliot that's how it is right right and so, um, even as the sensitivity of an Elliot, I know I it like, does have a like, like a Stephen Paul doesn't have the same Elliot's like 
sweet boy. Yes, it does. <laughs> it does. And not to take like... away from the Stephen and the Pauls. No, no, but I was going to say, no offense to all the Stephen and Pauls. Pauls but Elliot just sounds, sound it sounds like a singer-songwriter. Yeah, Elliot Smith sounds like. Even though there's Paul McCartney. Okay, well, let's forget about that. But, <laughs> but Paul was his middle name. Sensitive Pauls. Yeah, I'm just playing. <laughs> but Elliot, but Elliot really stuck with him. Yeah. With him. Uh, <laughs> after high school, he moved to Massachusetts to go to Hampshire College. He actually followed a girlfriend there, and he studied there. That was like a really kind of a non-traditional college, and he kind of he studied philosophy. He studied modern systems of thought. And the wonderful thing about college is that he really got the opportunity to study a lot of philosophers, like Kierkegaard, hmm. who would influence, you know, his Either Or album and, you know, give him that name. And, um, you know, because Kierkegaard wrote a two-volume book called Either Or, which Elliot used to name his third solo album. But, you know, music was never far away from him. Even the first week he met someone named Neil, and they formed a duo um, called Swim in Jesus. That's amazing. And they covered songs by like Elvis Costello. Um, I think it was Tom Waite. I don't know if that's the name of the artist. I can't remember, but Tom Waite. Uh, and the Beatles, of course, as well as they started performing their own songs. Um, and I think we talked about it, you know, because like Sam, he was a voracious reader and he read a lot of big thinkers during this time. Um, but after college, he moved back to Portland. Neil moved back. and not, I don't know, I think Neil was from Portland, but he moved as well with Elliot. They were really great friends. Um, and they formed a group with Elliot's, one of the members from uh, Strangers of Friction, uh, Tony Lash, and they formed a group called uh, Heat Miser, which included members from his high school band, which is like Tony Lash. And so how old was he now? He was probably after college, probably 21, 22. Oh, okay. You know, he was still fairly young. He was going from band to band. You know, he didn't mm -hmm. let anything grow under his feet as far as band. Um, but I went and looked up what heat miser meant. And heat miser, I guess there was some um, stop motion animated Christmas special. Oh, you know about it, Gabs? Yeah, so it's called The Year Without a Santa Claus, and it's a demon in there um, called Heat Miser. And I guess he's described as some ogre-like, blustery, quick-tempered hothead. Um, and that's why they named their band after that. Oh, my God, that's so crazy. Yeah. And they acquired it. You know, the funny thing about Heat Miser is they had a following from day one. I think they were all really good. They practiced a lot. Um they got a great dedicated manager named JJ Gonson. She, a girl, a girl named JJ. And they practiced like twice a week and they played the clubs every weekend. And they really gained a following really quickly. And um, they, the irony is that he and JJ started dating. Elliot and JJ started oh, yeah. dating. It's not a good idea. Yeah. Exactly. How like, did you just, know? What makes you think it's a Because it's never a good idea. Like, think of like any bands where the lines got blurred it's like conflict just, of interest it just isn't a good idea it's like it's very very rare that you are like you know oh me and the drummer that's a good idea for the longitude right. of this 
band. I just don't know. I just, Is it for the emotional aspect of it all? Well, I feel because, you know, first of all, being in a band of any kind any type of partnership really is like a it's like a marriage and a band really is like you I remember the bands I've been in that was my whole center of my universe and so you're already dealing with a whole bunch of sensitive people and you deal with artists <laughs> yeah dealing with artists those those fun types and dealing with all that and then also having just regular relationship bullshit on top of it when you also and also bands are like they not like they are a business as well so then you have everything all in one ball i mean i know there's yeah. some rare occasions that it's worked but there's some major occasions that it hasn't i mean the list is long like right we talk about coupling of bands where that may not have been the best idea <laughs> right yeah it bothers his bandmates like you were saying i mean it's funny that you just instantly picked up on that and it bothered them, um, and it bothered them so fact that JJ and Elliot moved in together. That helped out yeah. situation, I'm sure, great. But at this time, Elliot began to drink a lot. He loved Jameson Irish whiskey. That was his favorite. But the great thing, is, and what needs to be said, is that the band of the whole, including Elliot, did not take illicit drugs. They were clean. Um, but he did start exhibiting signs of depression around this time in his twenty early 20s. And he said um, he was drinking a lot at that point? Very much so. So that kind of maybe right. didn't he help? Did, no, it did not help. He didn't want to get on meds. Um, and uh, Heat Miser actually got a recording. They recorded something, and they released an album in 1993. I think it was called Dead Air. Um, and But during this time, he thought, you know, he had a lot of songs in him that he decided, I'm just going to kind of get these songs out of me, you know. And he sat, and I think one of the members went off to visit somewhere, went out of town to go to Hawaii or something. So he took this as an opportunity to kind of go into the basement of his uh, girlfriend, and he set up monitors in the corner of the room, and he created a demo. Um, and he all he did was sit on a stool, you know. And then sometimes looking for the best acoustics, kind of what we're going back to him, just creating what he created anywhere. Mm -hmm. Looking for the best acoustics, he would occasionally record it in the stairwell. He sat oh, yeah, on that's, the bed. That's the place to go. Yeah. And <laughs> so he did this great. demo of songs, and they knew other people in Portland that, um, you know, of a, of a record company called, I think, Cavity Search, and it was Chris Cooper. And Chris Cooper owned his own record company, and JJ was like, hey, you know what? Here's a demo tape because she knew she couldn't be a, a manager to Elliot and the band. So she saw, but she wisely was like, here, Chris, here's a demo tape. Tell me what you think. See what you, if you like it. And Chris was blown away. And he went to Elliot and he's like, look, Elliot, can we release this as an album? Let's release it. And it was released. It was called Roman Candle. Oh, and it was released to like critical acclaim. People fell in love with it, you know. It didn't do like bonanza, but he gained an instant following, I think. Uh, but the sad thing is that this situation where people would love to have be a critical darling, right? Mm -hmm. It didn't really help his mood, you know. Mm -hmm. We already talked about the drinking and mm -hmm. the, the depression that kind of started around this time. And Chris would later talk about how Elliot would be up, you know, he would be up with Elliot to like morning time, three or four in the morning, you know, um, saying, you know, because Elliot would say 
his depression took on a whole level of, I don't want to live anymore. So you say if it was you, Michelle, you go, I don't want to live anymore, Michelle. And you would be up all night mm -hmm. talking to him about why he shouldn't um, kill himself. And then Chris would say, you know, look, people love you. True. You know, we love your music. True. You know, he just, he said he could tell that he possessed so much torment, inner mm -hmm. torment. Um, and it was sad. And when I read that, I was sad for Elliot. Elliot used the medication of alcohol at the time mm -hmm. to um, feel a hold, maybe, or yeah, and even if it's temporary, mm -hmm. like to feel any to feel something else than that, than that feeling, despair, you know, yeah. is that's why I think people you have to be a little more, um, little more kind to the people that are, mm -hmm. you know, have been drug addicts or alcoholics. Those people need more kindness than mm. judgment because no one's like, oh, this is a great idea. I'm going to be a drunk. Like no one's like that. That's not that's no one's first choice. Right. So it's That's not their first yeah, choice. No, it's but what we're gonna deal with in this case is how far do you take it? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like with Elliot, he took it to the limit. Like the like the Eagles song, "Take It to the Limit." Mm -hmm. He took it to the limit. You <laughs> know, of of everything that you have in you, um, and it'll be interesting. But we will keep moving, moving along. So relations and heat miser weren't that good at some point. And I think how you know, long had they been together at this point? Well, okay, they kind of formulated, oh shoot. It was cuz they did an album. They released an album, I think, what did I say, in 1990. Uh I think they released an album in 93. Yes. And they have been together, I see, since he had graduated high school. Um, oh, so so he, time. I mean, sorry, since he graduated college. So it might have been like 92 when he graduated college. You know what I mean? Yes. Oh, okay. 87, 80. Because if he graduated high school in 87, um, it would be 88, 89, 90, 91. So they have been together. Well, they were together. Like, they released an album in 96. Like, their last oh, album. Oh, okay. Released so they were together and in a while. It, his albums, his solo albums were interwoven into these oh, times. Oh, okay. Oops, I hit the thing. <laughs> Oops. Uh, <laughs> but... I think that the, that the you know when he did this album, it had a lot of creative critical acclaim. They still did stuff, but I think it came down to vision mm -hmm. with Heat Miser and Elliot. You know, Elliot's musical vision was different, honestly, from Heat Miser's musical vision. You know, they would release two more. Heat Miser would release two more albums before disbanding, but. He was already interweaving his because he was so prolific. This guy was prolific. Out of all that, we just talked about depression. Mm -hmm. That's the amazing thing about him is how he was able to create so much with, you know, the capacity of the depression really holding him down mm -hmm. and really, but, you know, for his second album, which was released in 1995, it was called Elliot Smith. And he recorded a large portion of it in, like, his friend Leslie's house. Like, and the critics loved it. You know, and it was, this this album, I think, um, was important for two reasons. Um, the Elliot Smith album is that he wasn't doing illicit drugs, but there were a lot of metaphors to heroin in this album. That's so crazy. Yeah, and he would later, expl later explain that he used drugs or dope 
as a vehicle about dependency. He said you could you could substitute it for love. Mm-hmm. You could substitute the dope dope for love, the word love, and use that and he he used that as he wasn't on heroin. He wasn't on any of that stuff. Oh, um but he did use it as a metaphor, which was kind of sad because it's you see stuff coming. And then number two, he did double tracking. The layman like myself and our rocker babies would hear the word double tracking. What would that mean? Or the two words double tracking. What would double that track. mean? It's just uh it's like so you would sing he'd sing his lead line. Mm-hmm. And then he would just come in and sing a lead line over it. So okay. it's not the same harmony. Words. It's yeah, so you're basically kind of same words, same everything. Okay. It's just instead of taking splitting a track and just doubling it, when you sing, you know, a human voice has different variations. So you sing the exact same line the same way and it, it gives this like beautiful thicker stereo effect. Mm, nice. And, so, and you can like I mean you can go nuts on tracks. It's I was in a band when I was younger, and we used to have, like, I mean, there would be, like, 12 tracks all the time. Of he course, loved to do it. I loved doing it, too. It he fun. loved doing it. He loved doing double tracking. He did. He loved it. Um, it just makes it, it very full, and it gives this kind of magical... Ooh, eerie. Like, you don't want to like do too much of it, because there's definitely, you know, too much of a good thing Well, he perfected it, fun. they said. He yeah. seemed to perfect it in Elliot Smith album, which is his second album, which is... Ironic is named after him. This is second album, because most albums, the first album is named after you, and then the second album is something else. But it's kind of reversed with him. Um, and so, in 1997, it was like February 1997, his third album was released. Um, and this album was an artistic triumph. And I want to say, let me see here, his third album was called uh, I have it, Either Or which people talk about, um, which we talked about with Kiko Gore. Kiker, oh no, wait a minute. Yes, it was, either or. Um, and it was an artistic triumph. Um, and by this time, he really had a solid following. Um, and that's what's so brilliant is that the critics have loved him throughout. They've loved him throughout. Um, but, you know, sadly, none of this praise, none of this enthusiasm brought him any joy in February. Mm-hmm. And he started had to start taking an antidepressant, um, which lifted his spirits momentarily. Um, and I was talking about the album was released in February. It was a lot of um, acclaim for it. But by the summer, those good feelings had dissipated. You know, he was still drinking heavily. He was very depressed. Um, there were reports of blackouts and alcohol poisoning with him. Mm-hmm. And while on tour, and I think it was Sonic Youth, he was on tour with a bunch of bands, and it was to promote either or. Um, sadly enough, he got drunk one night, and he jumped off of a cliff. He ran off of a oh, cliff. Oh, that's crazy. And he miraculously landed on a on a tree. A tree broke his fall. That's incredible. <laughs> and, incredible. you know, that kind of kept his friends from, like, they, well, not even kept it. It, his friends were like, something's got to give. Something's got to give. And so they staged an intervention of him. And um, I say it was unsuccessful because he agreed to go. It, it happened in Chicago. Mm-hmm. He agreed to go to um, you know, a facility. He was in Chicago on, during the tour. 
and he agreed to go to a place in Arizona facility. Um, but like he was living in New York by this time and the person that he was living with, it was just his good pal. She said she got home one day from work and he was like on the couch going, Hey, I, you know what? That didn't work for me. I, I was gone like it. one day. It was a few days. I'll, you know what? I'm going to give it a few days, but it seemed like one day, one or two days. Wow. It didn't happen long. I mean, he didn't like the, he just didn't like it. He didn't like the feeling of being confined. Mm-hmm. You know, that one of his girlfriends sense. would later say he didn't like the idea of being confined. Um, you know, and, but there were some good bright moments in 1997. I mean, he, you know, DreamWorks had been wanting to sign him for a bit and he finally signed with a major label, you know, and recorded and released the album EXO in 1998. And it's funny because I read in a book that, you know, with all this depression and the, you know, suicide attempts, blackouts, that this one author wrote that his music kept rising and the person kept falling. Oh, that's so tragic and Kind Isn't of that brilliant writing? Well, but it's just that's so brilliant. Like, yeah, it's so sad. Oh, but I that know. goes back to like the happiness thing. Like that whole idea is that you know, money and success and fame and all that thing. People think it can solve so many problems, but it doesn't solve anything if you don't do the inside. You know, mm. that's true. That's very true. I mean. The interesting part is during this episode in 1998, you know, he received an apologetic letter from his stepdad, you know, saying, apologizing for, I guess, quote unquote, emotionally abusing him when he was younger, Mm -hmm. which I thought was big, you know, And, and Elliot, by all accounts, took it to heart, you know, and he would tell friends that his stepdad was a changed man. I mean, um... He was sorry about, I guess, what he had done or what he realized he had done or whatever. Because maybe he got back to the stepdad. I'm just, I'm just assuming mm-hmm. right now about what Elliot was telling his friends because he was always an open book. That's the thing about Elliot. He was very candid and very vulnerable about himself the whole time. And I don't know where all of this plays into it with his memory, and I don't know what it all did, but. He was very open about it. Um, um, and the irony is that Gus Van Zandt, during this time, while he was editing uh, the movie Goodwill Hunting, had been listening to Roman Candle. He listened to uh-huh. Roman Candle, and he listened to it throughout the whole editing process. And, you know, edit, you know, as we know, Elliot was already established during this time. And he called Elliot and said, let's sit down and talk. And they talked, and... He showed Elliot the movie before everybody else saw it and asked him, you know, if he could create an original song for the movie. He also put, you know, um, three previously released songs from a couple of uh, Elliot's albums into the movie. Yeah, he loved Elliot. Um, And uh, Elliot recorded a song for Goodwill Hunting. Oh, um, so good in it, too. (laughs) Which was Miss Misery. There were a couple of ideas about who or what the inspiration for Miss Misery was. Could it be his girlfriend at the time, Joanna Baum, who accompanied him to the Oscars? Joanna admitted they had an on-off relationship because of Elliot's drug use. Another inspiration idea, depression. 
In the song, Elliot admits to coming to misery and that he was under her thumb and being at her mercy. Miss a Misery. And it was nominated for an Oscar. And the irony is that he wasn't, you know, he was confident about his abilities, always. Mm -hmm. I mean, he knew he could write a song, and he had no problem sitting down writing a song. And the irony is that he was like, I don't know if I want to go and, you know, sing this song at the Oscars. I don't know if I want to do that, you know. But the producers were brilliant in that they told him, well, you know, you the song is going to be performed that mm -hmm. night. Whether you can perform it or somebody else, I don't know who they told him was going to perform it, but he, you know, they said it will be a musician of our choosing. Wow. And you got a choice. And he was like, no, I'm going to perform it. So he went and performed the song and blew it out the box. I mean, he was an Oscar nominated singer songwriter by this point. And that you was know. the year of Titanic? That was the year of Titanic. So that's and Titanic like, kind won. of like unfair for him. I know. Like he, he could have won other years, but that was Titanic. I know. Oh, Darn I it. Love Titanic. Yeah. I can't even talk about Titanic without getting emotional. I know. Well, your girl Celine, the the Canadian, oh, the Canadian, like yourself, she was there. I mean, Gabby's gonna talk about a wonderful story between a moment between her and Elliot that is like heartwarming I and love cool. That story. Yeah. Gabby's going to let the Rocker Babies know about it. Miss Misery was nominated for Best Song. Elliot was the only nominee who wrote and performed his own song. Reticent at first about performing the song, the producers made it clear that if he didn't sing it, someone else would take his place. He quickly decided to perform it. On March 23, 1998, wearing a white Prada suit, Elliot attended the ceremony with his then-girlfriend, Joanna Baum. Right before he was to perform, he saw Celine Dion backstage. She asked him if he was nervous and proceeded to kindly give him encouragement. Elliot said she called his song beautiful. Before Elliot headed to the stage, she gave him a big hug. You know, we moved to around 1999. He decided to move to L.A. And I honestly think this was the beginning of the end. Mm. Honestly. Um, he sounds... Moved it's sad. I know. No, we live I'm in LA. Laughing. We I'm live laughing in LA. Because I know. It's like it's like so many stories. And then they moved to LA. The then they moved to LA. Damn. It's just like I know. <laughs> the worst. And over again. I know. I know. It's that I love living in LA. You love li living in LA. Um, but for Elliot, you know, he was living in Portland. Or he came back from New York. So he lived in Portland, New York. And he's like, mainly for work purposes, he's like, I'm going to move to LA. And I just won't go forward about why. But the great thing is, though, is that this is a great thing that I think happened for him is that, and he casually mentioned about um, recording at Abbey Studios in London, awesome. where the home of the Beatles was. And he just kind of mentioned it. It wasn't like he took it seriously. But the, um, the record company, DreamWorks Records, was like, this sounds like a great idea. Let's do that. And they sent him over that, and he was living out a dream. I mean, he loved That's the Beatles. Awesome he loved be the White Album. Studios. Yeah, and it was a home, and he, you know, DreamWorks set it up, and he recorded five songs, and that would be for the album Figure Eight. Um, and that, you know, that cover of Figure Eight is iconic mm -hmm. because Autumn DeWild, who was the photographer, um, took that 
photograph at a place in Echo Park, which people can go and actually it's turned into a memorial um, for Elliot. And he um, stands in front of it and it's now a memorial to him, but it's funny that it's been covered now in messages to Elliot and it's been restored many times since his death. I read somewhere by his own fans, but oh, really? I don't know that. Yeah, it's a business there, but it's awesome. So it's figure but, eight in Echo Park? Yes, in Echo Park. And it's I think it's like an audio visual company or something. At the time it was like a bar or something. I, I can't remember, but you know, our rocker babies can go look it up. But um the sad part is, while on tour for this album, he started taking heroin. That is never a good idea, kids. Like, that's like, I don't think LA was the beginning of the end. Heroin. Heroin. Okay, you're right. Heroin I take that never, back. No, you're I right take about that back. LA because it started somewhere. But well, because he wasn't fine. into the Hollywood types. He wasn't. He was so comfortable. That's this is why I say L A maybe because you're right about it. I was just joking, but I yeah. Just... I mean L A. You know, I mean we even though we both didn't grow up here, but we live here, and it can take on a life of its like a superficiality. Mm -hmm. You got the whole celebrity vibe here, and he didn't give a shit about the celebrity vibe. Mm -hmm. He was like, I'm just about creating my music. I don't give a rat's what you're doing I don't care what you're doing it's me Elliot I'm gonna do my thing and I'm happy with that he was happy with that mm -hmm. but I think you're right he he gave in to heroin and tried it I think he was far away from home and he tried it and he nose dived right into an addiction I mean he only smoked it he never used a needle he was fearful of needles that's the weird thing about him um, but he sought treatment and got on methadone, but he couldn't really shake it. Um, he would get so high. And this started like a, a really, I'm, I'm just thinking, it started up a um, thing about him is that he would start a song during his concerts and he'd stop in the middle of the song. Did you ever see him in concert, Gabby? Because of heroin? Yeah, well, he'd be so high. Like, oh he would be God. so high. I mean, you know, and the audience didn't mind. Like, you would think that the audience would be like, bah. no, they were, like, totally, you know, would try and help him out and, and, you know, really, you know, help him out. And by the fall of 2001, he was smoking crack on top of that. What? Where yeah. were people to be like, don't. That everybody Smoke tried crack. talking to him. I don't, it's... They tried talking to him. I get I very know. upset, but people that try crack. Like, it's not... I know. Crack, crack is whack. Crack, crack is, is whack. It's true. I mean, I know I can have a lot of empathy for most things, but it's just like when someone hands you crack, just say no. I know, just but he no. seemed to be the type of guy that was like, you know what? He was, he was a type that would be like, Oh, you say don't try it? You know what? I need oh, to try it. See what it's going to be yeah, like. Yeah. I need to try I want to see for myself. He was that type of man where it's like, I need to see for myself. See? That's him saying, exactly. yeah. Yeah, saying, crack. Yeah, yeah, crack. <laughs> yeah, I need to see for myself. Uh, and he was taking numerous prescription drugs to boot. Um, you know, it's sad because he headlined a Los Angeles festival called the Sunset Junction Street Fair. 
I don't know if we have it anymore. I don't think we do, but it was a big deal. And he headlined that. And that poor guy messed that thing up the most, especially in the first half of the set. And he slurred and slurred through the songs. And he kept saying, I'm sorry, I can't remember the words. I'm so fucked up, is what he would say. And isn't that sad? It's really sad. That's why I was like, you know, when I was doing this whole research on this thing, I'm like, damn, this bums me out about him. Um, you know, cause that Joker was so freaking creative and prolific. Mm-hmm. Wrote albums during this whole time. That's what's so that incredible. That is what's pretty amazing. You know what? You have to give him credit for that. Yeah, well, to because... have a serious addiction, like to have depression and an addiction, which is not right. helping the depression, right? but to also be... Prescription drugs and... To be functional, and not right. only functional, brilliant. Yeah. Like, that's... Because depression is one of those things that can rob you of a lot of that stuff. Totally. But instead, it was like... This Joker could do yeah, so it's, much. It's I mean... Amazing. It's very tragic. I know. I mean, the, same time. the amounts vary, but supposedly, allegedly, I would say, he would spend upwards of like $1,000 a week on drugs during this What? Time. Yeah, it was really bad. Really bad. Aww. And on top of this, um, he's just like, you know what? XO, figure eight. I'm kind of done with the whole big business record label thing. I want to go back to doing my thing with the smaller indie labels you know, which made him so special. Yeah, totally. You know, so many people would just die to be with a, a big-time record yeah, company. Yeah, absolutely. Not Elliot. Elliot was like, hey, you all right. But, but he was like the what? original I, hipster. He was a hipster before hipsters were even around. Exactly. I mean, he could have <laughs> yeah. been in the 60s and been brilliant, right? No, I mean, totally. Because he was like, I don't need you, DreamWorks, you know. He wanted to be released from his album, um, his contract, I'm sorry, from DreamWorks. And in fact, he relayed like a message through his attorney to the DreamWorks execs that if they didn't release him from his contract, he would take his own life. And he put up a noose in his own house (gasps) just so everybody knew he was serious. Now, I don't know if he took a picture and sent it or how he relayed that, but I read somewhere he was like, I'm dead serious. Wow. And y'all going to let me out of this contract. And honestly, if I was them, I would let you out too because yeah, I'd be totally. like, I don't want nobody to kill themselves. And, you know, he was such a brilliant guy that I wouldn't want to be the the um, catalyst for that oh, mess. You know what I mean? So I mean that sounds like a nightmare waking, waiting to happen. And, um, and so in August 2002, you know, after a bad breakup, he kind of started dating a longtime friend, Jennifer, and he kicked the heroin and crack habit. Oh. Um, he received treatment. He started going through a, a, a few um, therapists and really kind of got a grasp on it. Um, he only took prescription medication, but the problem is is that it was a lot of medication, Michelle. Yeah. Oh. You know, the side effects of all those drugs made him very paranoia. I don't know if this is the right word, but it's like a cornucopia. That is the right word, yeah. Of medication. It was like antipsychotic, antidepressant, anti this. Everything is going up against each other. And he like carried around like a pill bag. I mean, he became paranoid about like white cards and vans. Because he thought, DreamWorks is bugging me and they're bugging my phones. I think I read somewhere where his, his girlfriend Jennifer said that he would take apart like radios and stuff and put them in the refrigerator. I mean, 
he was on fire. He was on fire. I mean, um, and out of all this, this is crazy. He was working on a double album, which will become from the Basement Hill at, at released after his death. But he worked on like at least 50 songs or more. Because he wanted it to be a double album. He had his own studio by this time called New Monkey Studios. And he loved that studio. And he worked on like, I'm just amazed when I read at least 50 songs. Mm. Like, incredible. That's, that's an incredible amount of work. Yeah. That's amazing. This was like 2002, wow. you know. And I mean, I've just. I'm just amazed because even if some people drink too much, they can't create songs. The interesting part is by his birthday, because his birthday is August 6th. So August 2002, he was like, I need to kick this, this these habits, heroin and crack. And by his next birthday, which is two, August 6th, 2003, he kind of realized that, you know what, I need to kind of confront my demons. Oh, wow. So he was clean that full year. Well, he clean of heroin and crack, but he was still doing that cornucopia of medications oh, doing that. Yeah, okay. But then this time he started thinking, you know, I, I kind of need to confront my demons. I need to deal with this stuff head on, um, which I don't know if it's a good idea because he impulsively like quit taking those pre prescription drugs, which some of them was probably there to help him out. Yeah. And he kind of quit cold. He quit. He didn't kind of quit. He quit cold turkey. And he also stopped smoking eating red meat, which you'll love, <laughs> uh, sugar, and drinking cough, caffeine. Oh, my God. That's like my life. Yeah. <laughs> and there were some side effects that kind of happened, some weird ones, so he got put back on a, like a couple of them. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the sad thing is that when he got rid of a lot of those, those prescription drugs, it kind of rushed in a lot of what you would call repressed memories of, I hate to say it, sexual abuse that he thought that he had had. And he discussed it with everyone, including like total strangers. And mm -hmm. in, in fact, one journalist wrote, that it was a great article in Spin Magazine, and that journalist said that whether his memories were true or not, Elliot lived his life feeling like an abused child in a grown man's clothes. That's so sad. Because that's a really hard one to fix, too. Like, there's no fixing, you know? Yeah. And I think that, you know, when I was talking about the years that he was on heroin and crack, he, a lot of people were kind of pushed away, you know, because it was difficult to watch and probably difficult to deal with. Um, and so kind of like in a bit to kind of re reconnect with old friends and family, and especially with his mom, his beloved mom, he had a converse, conversation with her in which he shared this repressed memories with her. Mm. And um, the mom listened, and she suggested that they all spend Thanksgiving together um, so that Elliot and his stepdad could talk it over. I don't know how good that was because yeah. that sounded kind of, you know, dangerous, which made him nervous about it very much i mean in all fairness i should say this his sister ashley um who grew up with him um has no recollection of sex sexual abuse um she and elliot were very tight throughout their whole life mm -hmm. she lived out here 
Sheen Elliott would type, but this was his repressed memory. And that kind of gave him a little bit of some anxiety. And I think that his mom went and related to the stepdad, and we'll get to that in a bit. But, you know, on uh, September 19, 2003, he performed his last show at a festival in Salt Lake City. And he performed it sober, actually. That probably was a great showing wow. because they said he played songs from even the Heat Miser wow. days. And he really, oh, and the sad thing is that he played a song by George Harrison, one of George Harrison's oh, songs. I George and I think Harrison. it was the last line was, I love you. And that's what he said to his audience when he left. Aww. I love you. I know. So, you know, that was I September 19th. I know, I know, this is sad. Um, but yeah, riveting. Crying. Sad, but riveting. I know Gabby's holding it in. There's no mascara, um, you know, going here. Uh, but on, that was September 19th, 2003, and then on October 21st, 2003, he, Elliot and Jennifer had, like, some little minor fight, um, she locked herself into the bathroom. Elliot knocked on the door, asked her to come out of it. Um, and actually, it started kind of the, the fight kind of started, according to her, was about him saying, you know, I'm being bugged. You know, it was something mm -hmm. about, you know, um, him being bugged or somebody listening or paying attention. And she um, locked herself in the bathroom. He apologized. And she told him, leave me alone for now, basically. And then she said she heard a scream from the kitchen. She went into the kitchen, and Elliot had his back to her. He turned around, and there was a knife in his chest. Oh, that's insane. Impulsively, she pulled out the knife. Mm, um, that makes sense, though. I feel like... I know. I, I thought I, about this. I know thing, people have if... problems with this, pulling out the knife. And I know you're not supposed to technically pull out a knife, but come on. But I think if, if, if your hubby was standing crazy, there with a police... you're like you're not thinking normally. There's a foreign object in someone. Can you imagine? You would want to take it out. Like I know there's a lot of conflicting stuff about his death, and I know right. there's a lot of opinions on it. Right. But if we just think of the beat of the moment, in, if you were in the moment, like yeah. I think if I was in the moment and I saw that, my initial response, even if it's not the right thing to do, right, is to take. In the chest, you right by the like, heart. Yeah. The whole thing is terrifying. Really. Yeah. Like, so she said she pulled it out. He collapsed. They had a balcony. He collapsed on the balcony. And she, you know, he she took it out. He kind of like stumbled, I think. Mm -hmm. And he stumbled onto the balcony. Now, she didn't want him to go over the balcony, right? Yeah. So she tackled him there to keep him from either jumping off of it or going over the balcony. Yeah. And she called 911, she performed CPR, and he was rushed to the hospital. Um, the police questioned her for a long time, a few hours, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and while the police were there, I, I know, I see where people, we'll, we'll talk about that in a bit, but while the police was there, Jennifer noticed a post-it note that read, you know, I'm so sorry, love Elliot, God forgive me, because she kept post-it notes around the house to kind of like keep him encouraged, you know, because he struggled from, you know, depression so much. Mm -hmm. But there was no date, so you don't know if it was that day yeah. or any other time. You don't know if it was written that day or something 
you know, some other time. The weird thing is that before we talk about what time he died, is that I was reading in a book, and I don't know if this is true or not, and this is this blew my mind a little bit, but the um, a couple of days before he had tried, he was always a cutter. Wow. Um, yeah, he always cut himself, you know, and the cigarette burns in himself because he, he had so much pain from mm-hmm. things. Is that, and this is, I would love to talk, ask Jennifer about this, is that the person of this book said that a few days before they were sharpening knives. That's such a weird thing to do. And that, that like struck me. Not because I was implying that she did something yeah. wrong, but honestly, if I was with Elliot, I would not be sharpening knives with him, honestly. Yeah. I'm just saying. Um, because of, you know, his state of mind, you know. Mm. But anyway, going back to this, I don't know if that's true or not. That's what I read. But, you know, Elliot died that day at 1.36 p.m. at the hospital. And months later, his death was ruled undetermined. Wow, so it's still time. undetermined. It's still undetermined. It's still an open case. Um, and the coroner kind of based it on a few things. Um, she said there was no absence of hesitation wounds, stabbing, you know, the stabbing through the clothing, which she later said that happens. People stab themselves in the clothing, and mm-hmm. obviously. And they said that he was kind of um, insecure about his body, so he's not going to just lift it up and just be like stab. But it. I think that you know, kind of makes that, sense. That kind of makes sense. Just kind of stab it right yeah. there. Yeah. Um, and the small presence of like little little wounds on his little right arm, but I said he was a cutter, so you don't mm-hmm. know, yeah. you don't know if he was a cutter and if he always talked about suicide. Um, That's a really hard one because of because of his depression, because of his history. Even though the death was so mysterious and wacky in so many ways, it's it's hard to formulate what what happened right. that day to even right. be. It's like how did this all happen? Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, you know, and then, you know, they said the removal of the knife. But like we said, I mean, the heat of the moment, you see a knife sticking out of somebody's chest. I mean, uh, maybe you just do it. You just yeah. pull it out. You know, it's weird, though, because I remember when I first heard this story, like I totally was like, oh, it's all crazy. Like I, I didn't think of actually putting yourself in the moment. That, right. I mean, again, none of Me us too. were there. We I don't, was suspicious, we don't too. We don't know what right. happened. And we we're not don't. claiming to know what happened right. at all. But just when you do think of the reality of the situation, if we were put, like, you have no idea what you're going to do in that moment. And too. you're coming out of a bathroom and seeing somebody with a knife in their chest. It's also lunch. Like, I feel like that's <laughs> yes. significant to the story. It is such an odd it's lunch time. time. Yeah. I don't know true. why. It's just to me that that's even true. blows me it away. It is lunch time. It's, just, yeah. it's not three in the morning. It's, right. It's very right. odd. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, and tragic. And the coroner said that you know, at the time, you know, she didn't know about um, the details of his life. Um, you know, they weren't available to her, like the like the, the suicide attempts, and mm. you know, um, the elements of his life that would say, okay, this is suicide. So that's kind of why she said she came up with that. Mm-hmm. determined that you know determination I should say um 
And I guess if he had been alone when he did it, it probably would have been easier. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, um, having a noose in your apartment is pretty... <laughs> Like I mean, it's, he's it's, making a point to DreamWorks, okay? Yeah, DreamWorks I mean that's record. a point. That's a point. It's it's just the whole thing is so. I sad like the melodramatic sad. of it though. I mean, he was letting them know I'm getting out of this damn contract one way or the other, and I loved it because not that he wanted to commit suicide, mm. but he thought of like the perfect reasoning that cut through the chase, and they were like, "Okay, I I see you later," you know, yeah. type of thing. Um, the weird thing is that, uh, you know, not a weird thing, but a year after his death, his family released the pared down version of that double album called, mm-hmm. uh, you know, from the basement on hill on the hill. Um, and they hired a longtime producer of his who wasn't working with him at the time of that last album, uh, Rob and Joanna, his ex-girlfriend, um, and they helped mix it and stuff like that. But Joanna did mix either or. So, you know, and the family, you know, I think understandably chose to leave out. People were talking about they left out this song and that song. But I think that they should have left out some of the songs because they're painful. You know what yeah. I mean? And they just want to pay homage to his life and to him, mm-hmm. you know, what he stood for and his brilliance of songwriting. Mm-hmm. which I think is... Um, which he really was. I mean, you listen to him. I've listened to Elliot a lot the last couple of weeks, and uh, it's amazing to me how much his sound has influenced so many bands that are current totally. now. Like, you listen to... You, it's and even just, at the time that he came along, because people heard his sound and then started taking it. I think he even remarked about that one time, you know, to family and friends, like... He knew, you know, because he had something original. Well, he had that, that especially at that time, because right. he was coming out of, like, right. you know, the post-grunge, and then it was a lot of, like, in the late 90s, it was all that, you know, a lot of popular artists were doing all this existential music, and then once realized that we were still here after Y2K, the music got really, it was like boy mm-hmm. bands, and, like, that was what was really popular. There right. wasn't, and then... He just had this this gentle brilliance to him. That is the and, right word, gentle brilliance. And his music still sounds like you listen. It's just it really is truly amazing how many bands that are current now that are completely whether they acknowledge it or not mm-hmm. are influenced by him because he really completely. gave birth to that that genre of that because it was very gentle but also not. But complex. Yeah, that's what very I mean. Very like, complex It was and very strong. complex. Exactly. But it had this, this. I don't know, you just listen, and then you, you always listen deeper to his songs. It wasn't yeah. just this passive music. There was always something more. And I, I think you said it. I think it was you who said it about a week ago or so. We were talking about him. Um, and that's so funny. I, I had it in my mind. Dang it, I hate when I forget things. But I think... The brilliance of him, like you were saying, is that, but you know what? I think you said it. I think you or Ben said it, is that there's no one else that can do it like him. That eerie, mm. the eerie vocals, the complex lyrics, the the vulnerability. It was like complex. Well, he also lived vulnerable. it. It was more than just a thing. He didn't. It's not just that he created this sound. It wasn't and a fad. Part. It wasn't, it wasn't a character. It was him. And I think that's what made it. And I mean, again, and I think we did talk about this in the previous episode about Sam Cooke, is that uh, 
it's again that authenticity and that's mm. what people relate to like it doesn't even, even if it's a messed up authenticity people relate to real and that's totally. why there's something within his heartbreakingly beautiful sound mm-hmm. that touches people and to this day still touches people it's not it's not that long ago but long enough ago and he still is just as relevant now as he was 15 20 years ago you know what's so incredible is that Every time I say Elliot Smith, like when I was talking to, to my friends about doing the show, we were mm-hmm. doing an episode on Elliot, and I mentioned his name, and everybody said, oh my God, I love Elliot Smith. And it's exactly like that. It's never like, oh, cool. It's always like, oh, yeah. I love him. It's always like this exhale and then right. I love. Yes. It's like very dramatic. Yes. Elliot and would love that. He would want the He drama. would love it. And you know what? That's legacy right there. And yeah. like we were talking about with Sam um the authenticity of his and it was vi- it's still vibrant mm-hmm. his sound is still vibrant um because it, it sits with him and i you know it's funny there was a quote that he said and i thought it was brilliant and i thought you know what something positive that i could say or that we could say about um elliot is that you know his advice to somebody asked him about his advice to would-be songwriters and this is for our rocker babies out there too. And he would say is just relax and stop thinking about what people want to hear. Put it in the blender and see what comes out of it when you're writing songs. Just do you, be you. That's true. And also when you really connect to people's message, mm-hmm. like he had a message. I mean, he, he came from, there's some type of trauma Mm-hmm. And he took that trauma and made art out of the trauma. Oh, God. Like, he made, he took it to a next level of brilliance, like what you were saying about brilliance. He took his pain, and that became his muse. Um, you know, it just became his thing. And, and to I, even now that and it speaks to the underdog. It speaks to it everybody. Totally speaks Everybody's to the been in some type of pain. Everybody's been in some type of funk. And sometimes that pain, like he, like the original quote that you tricked me on, uh, <laughs> I, I really do honestly feel that some of the saddest songs make me the happiest. Oh yeah. And I have, like I said earlier in the show, that I have a student. She's young. She's a teenager, and she's a brilliant, brilliant writer. And um, we were just talking because, like, we'll be talking about animals and everything, like all light and then we like go to play songs or songs we're t- and they're all like just devastatingly tragic and mm. painful but they give i don't know they make me happy that's not making me sad right you know so it's sometimes those do you know any particular song well i know i was going to ask you at the beginning of the show because one thing about him is that he listened to the white album by the beatles mm-hmm. over and over again that's what i loved about because i remember being 12 or 13 listening yeah. to stuff over and over and again but even in my adult life like he would listen to things over and over yeah. again and i know me like i i love a tribe called quest like oh, i could listen awesome. to them over and over and over again and i think that's what's so brilliant about him like do you have any type of albums that you listen to oh over yeah. and over that you can listen to now and just listen to it and take oh you i was re- ridiculously obsessed with okay computer uh radiohead like ridiculous like stupidly obsessed and also it was i remember when i was like i think i was 15 
Canadian band Blue Rodeo, Blue Moon, I listened to, I think, for 36 hours on repeat. And he that's... would tell you he would love that because he listened to stuff like that on repeat. I like did that. it all the time. I mean, Led Zeppelin. I used to listen Led to Cream. Zeppelin I was too. obsessed with Cream when I was 12 years old. Like, really. And I like, You say so... Cream, I say Queen. I love Oh, well, Queen, um, Queen, Queen. Queen, I mean, too. Can't even get me started on I Queen. mean, I loved. Other. But yeah, I think most, I actually Michael Jackson, I love Michael Jackson. I get very obsessed with Off the wall. I don't know, I don't really understand not being obsessed with I know, that's it, because it takes you to a place, you know what I mean? I'm sure you've taken to many places that he... I still do that now, I do too, I I do too. I get like into a record and that's all I want to listen to. Maybe I'll listen to... Until one day I'm just like, enough of you. (laughs) I know, and then you'll hear it on the radio and then you go back to it, you know? That's what's beautiful about music. I mean, that's even the birth of this show is because this music, we're going to be talking about all different genres, all different artists, all different time periods, and they all have just as much of an impact as they do today and, you know, the beginning of recorded music. So Mm -hmm. we'll have some people that are probably from 70 years ago and some people that are very current. And I feel like that's what's so great about music and sound and these stories, like you said, that they connect forever. Yes. And, and we're lucky to be in a time where music is recorded now because this hasn't always been the case, you know? Completely. You have to listen to albums. Yeah. No, up. no, not, on, not only that. I mean, mm-hmm. even just the last hundred years, yeah. like there wasn't, you know, music didn't start, obviously, because there's brilliant music from all, but it was written, but it wasn't recorded. Right. right. So we're lucky to live in a time where music is recorded and And it's so accessible. So we can, yeah, and we can hear anything mm-hmm. and actually... Um, Thank you, like, Steve Jobs. Yeah, I was just, iPod. that's so funny you just said that because I was just, I was like, didn't know if I should say it, but I'm like, well, if you get your Thank subscription you. to Apple Music, you pay 10 bucks a month and you can download anything. It's Thank amazing. you, Steve Jobs. Um, and um, yeah, and I think that that's, um, that's the beauty of this whole thing, mm-hmm. you know, which I love. I love listening to songs over and over again. And it's inspiring, I think, as any... You don't have to be a creative to be inspired. Well, I think we're all creative. But, like, as, you know, I personally do music, and I get so excited and inspired by hearing all these greats and their stories and this, how they came about doing what they did and did it so well. Yeah. Um, and that there's a billion different ways to do it, you know. But the BU, I, I think that's... We should rename Rockabies to BU. I know. <laughs> BU, Rockabye's BU. I know. That's right. Just do it and be you. You know, mm-hmm. be authentic. Be authentically you. You know, don't let anybody tell you anything different, as we say in the South. Don't let them tell you nothing different. <laughs> I love that. Um, or take any wooden nickels, as my grandma used to say. But I love that. <laughs> but, I, you know, I think that that's probably what this all means. And I think that's our, I think that's our, our lullaby, our goodbye, our rockabye on this note, you know, on Mr. Elliot Smith with his brilliant self. Well, thank you, Elliot. We'll keep listening to you for years to come. God bless you. Thank you. And thank you, Gabby. Thank you, Gabby. All right. Bye. Rockabye. For behind-the-scenes looks or more information, or just to be part of the conversation, please join us at www.rockabyespodcast.com.
and a bid to reconnect with old friends and family. He had a conversation with his mom in which he told her about um, the, abuse, the abuse that he had, that he thought he had suffered, or he may have suffered um, at his stepfather's hands. And it, it sounded like it was sexual abuse. And the mom listened and suggested that they all spend Thanksgiving together so that Elliot and his stepdad could talk it over. And in all fairness, Ashley, his beloved sister, grew up with him, who grew up with him, has no recollection of, you know, sexual abuse. And she and Elliot were pretty tight. And I know that Elliot was going through a lot at this time. He had kind of cut a lot of things out of his um, body, cold turkey, like a lot of medications and stuff. Um, and so he performed, you know, this kind of actually threw him into a tizzy of a little bit because he's like, oh my God, now I got to go through. Everybody, you know, when it comes to family, we all kind of get nervous when it comes to the holidays. And he had extra pressure because this whole thing about abuse may come up. Oh, yeah. And so he was, uh, he was kind of dreading that a little bit. And then nevertheless, on September 19th, you know, he performed his last show at a festival in Salt Lake City. He performed as Sober. It was probably one of his greatest shows. Wow. And as we know, he died October 21st. So it's funny, Michelle, because when I was talking about, um, you know, reconnecting him, Elliot reconnecting with his mom and old friends, you know, after the tough year that he had had before, um, his mom went and talked to his stepdad. Mm-hmm. And she told the stepdad about what Elliot was saying. And the stepdad, you know, in a bid to, you know, smooth over everything and to really kind of make a connection with his stepson, he wrote two letters. He wrote a letter to Elliot's girlfriend, um, and he wrote a letter to Elliot. And he basically to the girlfriend, he was like, you know, thank you for giving this letter to him. You know, I appreciate it. I can't wait to see you guys. And... You know, he basically refuted the sexual abuse wow. claims that Elliot had um, accused, you know, or told his mom. Mm-hmm. I guess these were just repressed memories in Elliot mm-hmm. that Elliot was having. And it, it, the sad thing about it is that the letter was delivered like either, I think it was, it was mailed October 17th, so a few days before he died. And it must have come like either that day or the day after. Wow, that's crazy. It's sad. So sad. And I feel kind of bad for, you know, the whole family, all intended, because, you know, when you try and reach out to smooth over everything, and, mm-hmm. you know, he didn't get a chance to really make amends. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about the stepdad, and, the, you know, I, I would imagine it to be very painful um, mm-hmm. for his family. Oh.